Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us as our guest, Bob Graywall. Bob is an M&A advisor based out of Southern California in Ventura County. Bob became an M&A advisor after he successfully exited his own business, providing him unique entrepreneurial-oriented perspectives as he helped facilitate exits for his clients. In the first transaction that Bob shares with us today, he talks about a medical research company that was founded by research PhDs, and they developed a company with a highly complex business model, which relied on highly paid professionals that performed and managed all of the medical research. While the business generated millions in revenues, the cost of these highly paid staff produced an EBITDA in the low six figures. Learn why this made an exit impossible. You need to take note that the reason isn't what you might expect. Next, Bob shares how a label manufacturer's divorce and other lifestyle changes necessitated the sale of a business. At the same time, there was a long shoreman strike that blocked critical shipments that was needed from Asia. The strike proved to be catastrophic and devastated sales. Yet the entrepreneur was able to find the right buyer even though revenues continued their downward spiral. Learn what Bob did to close the transaction and close it at the initial listing price. Then Bob shares how he was able to position a niche-oriented hearing-enabling manufacturing company for a successful exit by properly structuring the offering memorandum. Sometimes it isn't how much money you are making in a business that is important, but how you tell the story. See how this exit story was presented and how it enticed the right buyers to the table. Finally, Bob shares how a third-party logistics company that had a location that was losing boatloads of money and how the losing operation was positioned as the reason and the primary reason for why someone should buy the business. This skillful positioning is something that required real insight and skill to craft a story that supported what most buyers would have seen as a huge negative and turned this into the primary reason the acquiring company bought the company. Every entrepreneur needs to take note and listen closely to this story. So this is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we're here with Bob Graywall. Bob, would you take just a couple of minutes and uh, introduce yourself and your firm and where you're located? And then we're going to jump right in and talk about some of your transactional stories that you'll be able to share with our audience today. Thank you, Marvin. It's good to be with you. So uh, I quite simply sell businesses. We're based here in Thousand Oaks, California. Our actual mailing address is Westlake Village. And we focus on selling small businesses, You know, businesses as small as maybe a million dollars in value upwards to 50 and even 100 million in value. But our sweet spot really is that one to $20 million space um, that often ignored space and uh, an underserved area of the market. And we have six intermediaries here uh, that uh, sell businesses, uh, primarily based in, in California, but uh, we've worked with clients all over the world. What part of California are you located in? In, in Southern California. So we're in Thousand Oaks um, in Ventura County. We're ba- basically, I always describe it as an hour between LA and Santa Barbara. And so it's a it's a nice little quiet suburb out here. Okay. Well, why don't we now start with a, a transaction that had its problems, maybe made it to closing, maybe did not. Do you have one that you can outline for us and give us the details and how that transaction unfolded? Yeah. Thank you, Marvin. We'll start with something positive like that. It'll make a great first impression amongst your audience. <laughs> so, um, well, uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a really healthy... Um, 
conversation because I think it's, you know, you always have folks, intermediaries and MA advisors, uh, maybe spinning things. And what I like to do is, and, and what's so great about your show is you talk about both the good and the bad. And so, and the, and the bad you learn a lot from. So one of the, uh, one of the transactions uh, that, um, that I learned a lot, and I think the seller learned a lot, and I think your audience will, was based on this packaging company that I, um, that I was selling. And I met the owner a couple years before he was actually interested in selling and he owns a business that sells essentially labels that go on shampoos, uh, food products, uh, beverages, um, even hairspray. It's a really interesting business. So his business is, what's fascinating about it, he has like a repeating revenue component. So he grows with his clients and every month they keep buying labels. And um, he was tired of his business and he was having some health issues and he was ready to sell. And How long had he been in the business? Is this something he'd been in for a lifetime or just a few years? 20 years. He had his business for 20 years. And prior to that, he actually worked for a company in the same space before starting his own company. And he, he made plenty of money. Uh, he did well and, uh, and was, as, was ready to just really retire. So one of the first steps is we go through an opinion of value and talk to him about the valuation of his business. But one of the key foundations of, of value is earnings. And um, you know, in, in real estate, they'd often talk about location, location, location. I, I refer to it in business sales as earnings, earnings, earnings. And you know, you have you have your EBITDA figure, figure, which is your earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. You got to keep that steady or growing uh, when you're selling your business. And when we um, went to market on his business, uh, his earnings were fantastic. He was doing well. And uh, we got in a contract with a buyer and the buyer, interestingly enough, actually went on vacation uh, and was uh, overseas for uh, two weeks uh, while we were putting a lot of the due diligence information together. And um, the buyer gets back and gets an updated set of financials from uh, from us. And I had warned uh, and cautioned my seller that uh, you know we might have a negative reaction from the buyer because the earnings went down. Um, so we keep a trailing 12-month earnings. So, you know, we're in we're in June now. So ideally you might have a earnings figure go from June 1st, 2020 to uh May 31st, 21. And that's what we call our trailing 12. And it was lower than what we originally presented to him. And we have to explain it. Why is it lower? And um, and he had explained that he hadn't hired some salespeople, some people left and he hadn't replaced them in time. And the buyer was okay with it. And then as time went on, the earnings kept going down and down and down. And eventually the buyer said, Look, I can't buy this business. At this price, I need to I need to adjust. I'm still interested. I recognize that you're having some challenges, but I can't overpay for the business. And so the seller refused, uh, and he just didn't want to change his, his price. And so, was that a surprise to you that he would refuse? No, it wasn't a surprise. I think most owners, you know, uh, we all value things uh, highly, especially if we built them ourselves. And and I know um, when a price gets anchored into uh, an owner's mind, it often doesn't move. And so he was also very passionate and emotional about his business. So it's, it's, it's often the case that most owners are insistent. And many times it's not about the money. It's about uh, principle. They feel like they should have a, a certain price. And so I explained to him, you're going to probably have to turn the, the business around. And I don't think we should go back to market. I think we should just wait. So he, um, he held off. We took the business off the market and he tried to grow it. And he was exhausted growing it. He was just too tired. And so he ultimately, ultimately, we agreed on um, a new expectation on value. And, um, and so we went back to market and I had some buyers from the first round that we had. And then, uh, and then I was also marketing to some new buyers. That gentleman, I got him close to 13 offers on his business. And, um, and we found the perfect buyer that wasn't afraid of the decline. They understood the business and complimented them. It wasn't just a competitor. It was somebody that really complimented their, their customers and their business. And we got a deal done and it closed. So I'm just interested before we, you know, talk about the final closing of the transaction. Uh, can you give me a little idea? You made an interesting comment there that you found the right buyer. It wasn't a direct competitor. What made that buyer comfortable to go ahead and move forward with the offer, even though there were some issues and problems involved? So as I described, they make labels and some of their customers were very unique and interesting because the buyer was also in the packaging business, 
but they didn't make the exact same product. And they had a whole set of customers that were asking for the same types of pro- uh, products that they were selling. So it's a classic textbook synergy. And, um, and they also found they could save a lot in shipping costs because uh, the, the buyer was actually smaller. It was a publicly traded company in Taiwan. It was a subsidiary of it. And they were not filling whole containers. So there were some cost savings and some um, that they were that they were enjoying with a potential transaction, and um, and for them, they saw they could make they could save uh, immediately on shipping. Uh, they could grow their top line by selling the company's products to their to their own customers, and so that ultimately got them really excited and got them to overlook uh, the decline in earnings and and quite frankly. The, the earnings did decline, but they started to plateau after a while. So it wasn't as if we went into an LOI with the buyer and then the earnings started declining further and further. It was they declined from the previous period, but at least they were steady from what we presented. So it's it about set, presenting a, a business with a certain set of earnings that were consistent with what we originally presented. So it sounds like there was a lot of detail and data available for the buyer to look at, that they weren't out operating in a vacuum. And since they were coming from the industry, they kind of understood what was going on. And because they had data, they could make an informed decision. Yeah, we had to provide a lot of reports. And and sometimes for a lot of my business owner clients, the reporting just drives them nuts because they've been running their business fine with all this reporting. And now all of a sudden they need so much reporting for a buyer. And, uh, but ultimately what that does is it reduces the perception of risk uh, for a buyer if you provide them with a tremendous amount of data. Um, and you have to be careful about what you're presenting. So you don't want to present too much. So if they don't close the deal, you've shared all this information despite your confidentiality agreement. But you just need to understand what data it presents and what's going to make a buyer comfortable and also empathizing from where the buyer's coming from. So you know, a lot of sellers don't think like buyers, but it would help them in the sales process if they could. So I think the big takeaway here is, would would you say the takeaway would be that you kind of need to protect your earnings at all costs until you get across that finish line? It's kind of like pedal to the metal until you cross the finish line with the flag waving? That's right. Yeah. I don't, don't stop running. I think uh, what I what I encourage all sellers to do, and what this particular seller didn't do, was try to save some money uh, by not hiring salespeople. But what you should do is really grow the earnings, grow the revenue, just run, run, run. You know, last one two miles in that marathon, just give it all you got because it'll protect the purchase price and even get you more value uh, if you can just really protect your earnings. That's like the number one thing I think sellers should really focus on is protecting their earnings as they're, as they're selling their business. It's the most important. It sounds also like uh, you were able to coach the seller here to understand that he had to really put himself in the seat of the buyer because there were some issues with declining sales. He had to kind of reset button of expectations of what was going to be reasonable or not reasonable, or he may not even get the business sold ever. That's exactly right. And then um, he was just too tired and didn't have the energy to turn it around. And quite frankly, even the delta between what he sold for and what he could have gotten had he grown the earnings back to what it originally was. If you if you calculate that in terms of the value of his own time, it wasn't worth it to him. And I made, I, I got him to look at it that way. And he realized that he could invest the money and and still do really well and, and, and reach his retirement goals and not have to pursue you know, a certain number just out of principle and just to and go and enjoy his life. And, uh, and under the circumstances, it was the best decision. He was so happy after the sale, he was able to go get a lot of surgery that he was postponing. And, and he no longer has the headaches of, uh, of employees and, and customers and everything else. And so his stress level just um, completely disappeared when, he, uh, when we sold the company. All right. Well, pedal to the metal and don't try to squeeze the last dollar out of it because there's things more important in life than just uh, maximizing that last 5% of the sales transaction. So I think that's advice that, you know, a lot of our audience can relate to. And this whole concept, I think of, do you really have the energy to do what it takes to grow your business? I think that's a huge issue for a lot of folks once, especially if they've been doing this for five, 10, 20, maybe decades, the amount of energy it's going to take to, you know, bump that sales. 
this may not be worth it because there are some other considerations to take into the decision-making process. So those are good, good ideas. And that was a great transaction to share with our audience here. So let's move on to another transaction that, you know, had its issues and problems and maybe didn't close. I don't know. You tell us. Sure. Sure. So, um, so yeah, that's a, you know, owner fatigue is one of those things where they're just so tired of, uh, of running and handling the responsibilities of a business, you know, it plays a role in, in many of these um, uh, sellers uh, as they go to market, because you can't sell a business in a month or two months or three months. It, it takes time and it could take anywhere from four or five, six months to a year. Um, in some cases, longer if the business is incredibly complicated. So this next company is a clinical research company and uh, they would uh, help um, both potential patients with very debilitating disease and, um, and ailments with cutting edge medicines that are not released yet. And so they're going through phase trials. And so it's incredibly high stakes business, very complicated. The owner is very well educated, but unfortunately the, the business was generating millions in revenue, but only hundreds of thousands in earnings. And so when you have a business that's generating um, something less than a million dollars a year in EBITDA. So EBITDA, define that for our audience here. Sure. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So it's not just your net income figure. You're adding back your, your income taxes and your depreciation. It's not really a true earnings or income cash flow figure, but it's a, it's the figure that's used in, uh, in deal making uh, to compare deals. So, And your intermediary can help create that for you. Um, or even your your CPA, your accountant, and um, so so the EBITDA on that at four hundred thousand was just simply too low to interest most buyers. So as we were on market, it became very clear that most strategic buyers were really looking for larger, like three million or four million or five million EBITDA. And this was just, I mean, you hire just a couple of highly talented, well educated folks that'll just eat up that EBITDA quickly if you wanted to grow that business. So it was very difficult. We ultimately got one buyer that was really interested. Uh, the price was too low. We tried to do some negotiation. The buyer ended up walking. And we unfortunately, um, you know, my advice to the owner was to, to just try to grow the business uh, more. And, um, you know, he's got such a sophisticated business and then, and then go back to market. So just uh, want to ask you a question here as you're describing the type of client that you had, the business that you were trying to position for a sale. So you have a business that's highly complex here because it's in the pharmaceutical and drug area. They have, uh, they provided these clinical trials. And I would imagine this is very data intensive. A lot of highly educated people, statisticians, medical researchers, you know, people that understood the, the pharmaceutical and bio life sciences. And those people don't come cheap. And so they were making a lot of money. And even though the company was generating millions of dollars in profit because of the complexities of the business and how the business operated with high labor cost, the EBITDA was low. Am I getting that right here? It's actually millions in revenue, not profit. It's in, so you have a lot of money coming in and, uh, and not a lot of money, you know, uh, going to the pocket of the owner. So, uh, revenue itself is just activity. It's a sign of activity, but it, profit and and EBITDA. Yeah. And that was primarily driven by the high cost of labor and I'm sure other things, but that was what was suppressing the profitability of the company. I would say total revenue too. So total revenue wasn't high enough. The business was simply not large enough. And you could still sell companies with 500,000, a million in EBITDA, but if it's, but it needs to be in some space that's um, relatively simple, like, you know, like my packaging company, um, you know, and I have, I've had other, let's say, widget manufacturers, but when you're in a in, in medicine or even in engineering, uh, you need to have a little bit of a larger business uh, to attract interest from strategic buyers. So, it's um, it's the total size um, of it, but ultimately, uh, buyers do not care if you generate twenty, fifty, hundred million in, in revenue so much as do they want to see the profits that you're really turning that business into a profitable business. If it's break even and doing 50 million a year and you have another business that's generating two, three million in EBITDA and it has a lot less revenue, that business is going to be worth a lot more. 
Well, that's interesting. I would imagine that, you know, some of the buyers out there, especially in the private equity or family offices business, maybe some strategic buyers, they're looking for a specific key metrics. They're looking at total revenue as compared to net profitability of the business. And if it doesn't fit those criteria, they don't even take a look at the business. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, many cases, yeah. If it's just stressed or it's break even, they're they're often not interested. Uh, they'll look at gross profit. They like to see really high gross margin. Uh, many of them think that they can save a lot of money on kind of the operating expenses, but they can't change direct costs as much. So they like seeing high gross profit margins, and they definitely want to see positive EBITDA. They don't want to turn a business around. They just want to grow it. So it sounds like this business that you're talking about here had the high labor cost. Was it project-based or did it have a lot of recurring revenue? That's a great question. It it was project-based, but he had solid relationships uh, with, um, with many of the companies, uh, pharmaceutical companies that would keep bringing him more work, but it was project-based. So the multiples on project-based businesses tend to be a little bit lower. Um, whereas if you have a recurring revenue business, like some type of subscription, or you have a consumption business, you have, you know, you're selling a, a food product or let's say cosmetics of some sort, and it's getting used and the, and the, and the customers come back to it. Those have really high multiples as well, but that's a multiple of EBITDA. So a multiple of EBITDA, you know, you apply that and you typically see higher multiples for those businesses with very reliable uh, revenue and income streams um, and, you know, lower multiples for folks that are in more project-based types of businesses. And I would imagine because of the type of business and the complexity of the business that you're dealing with here, it was really, well, probably could be challenging to find the right type of talent because there's a lot of competition for that type of talent and you may or may not be able to recruit freely. That's right. That's exactly right. And it's and then there's a very complex level of of knowledge, uh, knowledge transfer from the owner, because this is a very active owner, uh, to um, an employee a buyer might hire. So it's uh, you, you need to you need to make it worth it for a buyer. Um, and a lot of these financial buyers, if they have room to hire, so if you've got something that's generating one and a half to three million in EBITDA, there's plenty of income there to hire talented staff. But when you're when you're at four hundred thousand, you know it's just uh, it's just too small. So I'm just curious. You know, you've outlined some of the challenges here that you've dealt with, and uh, there's certainly a number of issues that made this business complex and that drove down the profitability of the business. Did you ever get it sold? No, this one I I personally did not sell it. Um, we had the offer on it. Um, the owner actually, for, fortunately for him, as he grew and grew and grew the business. He was able to. Um, he actually had a buyer that he wanted to work with, and uh, it, it was actually some of the buyers that I had spoken to earlier. But years had gone by, and he had sold it to one of the buyers I introduced him to. But his business had, had significantly grown its earnings, um, so it was definitely much more attractive. So it's really basically what you were talking about here is that the business at the time that you were involved in trying to get it sold just wasn't big enough. It didn't have the type of top line revenue, even though it were millions of dollars and the profitability was low. But what the buyer did is take, you know, a number of years I don't know if that's three, four or five years and substantially increased both the top line and the bottom line and was able to find a buyer. Yeah, the seller did that. That's correct. That's uh, precisely correct. So what would be the big takeaway here, Bob? I would say I would say if you're a business owner in a, in a, in a space that's highly technical, like you, you, maybe the business owner herself or himself is an engineer or a medical professional and you have a business that's very complex. Um, and it requires a lot of um, expensive labor. You really want to make sure you're growing the business and earning at least a million dollars in EBITDA, maybe two million in EBITDA. And again, that's like you know a a a cousin of earnings is EBITDA. And you just really make sure you have a profitable business that's large enough where you're going to attract a lot of buyers. And if you do get it up to two million in EBITDA, let's say, you're going to have a whole huge pool of buyers for you. There's a lot of buyers that want that business. So that would, by extension, you know, two million. You have a lot of buyers, and if you get up to three or four or five million dollars, you're probably going to attract a different type of buyer, maybe even some strategic buyers that look at businesses that 
you'll have that type of EBITDA, and they, and they don't unless you get up to that three to five million dollar range. Yeah, and that's and again, that's only for you know folks in in highly technical businesses, often found in engineering and in, in medicine. But if you're a widget manufacturer and you're doing eight hundred thousand dollars a year in earnings or a million a year in earnings, there's a tremendous amount of buyers for that type of business too. And the buyers would be different. They would be like C level executives looking for a good business that they're going to own and operate and scale, right? That's right. Yeah. So when you're at the eight hundred thousand or a million in EBITDA, you'll find C level executives. And the great thing that way you maximize value is you get financial buyers and strategic buyers all competing against each other um, at the same time. And when you have lots of leverage, you get the you get the best price. You find the buyer with the greatest probability of closing, and uh, and you get your deal done. And that's the best way to do it is when you have them all compete. But the buyer, you're right, uh, Marvin. The buyer, the types of buyers typically are different when you have a earnings at eight hundred thousand or a million and a business that's generating five million a year in EBITDA. It's a different type of buyer. Well, Bob, that certainly gives us an insight in some of those challenging transactions that you've been a part of. Why don't we take a short detour here and uh, move over to chatting a little bit more about some of those transactions that didn't have as many challenges, but maybe had challenges, but worked out really well, regardless of the challenges that were presented. Can you share a couple of transactions like that with us today? Sure. One of my favorite transactions was one that I just completed in December uh, of 2020. And, And the reason I say that is uh, when when the shutdown, the pandemic shutdown uh, started here in California in March of 2020, I told my wife, we're just going to have to write the year off. We're going to, you know, just cut our expenses. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, this is the first time ever that they've actually just deliberately taken the train off the tracks and shut the economy down. And so I thought many of my engagements, my business owners would be suffering and it would be difficult but this particular client that I had sold, uh, that I had signed, uh, and we did it all via, you know, DocuSign and uh, and electronically. And I thought, boy, how are people going to even sell businesses without meeting each other? And so we signed, we agreed to go to market, and his business was doing great. And I said, how could it possibly be doing so well? You know, what's obvious now, but wasn't so obvious then, where you had all these folks that were locked up. And um, and they were still buying. They were not buying at brick and mortar. You were buying at 3PL, which is my client, a third-party fulfillment operator. And so, so let's just uh, back up here for those that may not be familiar with that. So 3PL stands for an acronym for third-party fulfillment or logistics. Third-party logistics, right? So you're you're an entrepreneur. You have a product you want to sell on the internet or on TV, and you don't want to have a warehouse. Uh, but you just want to focus on on product design and marketing and sales. You can have a company that can house all of your inventory, and you just send them all the electronic orders, and they'll ship all the orders to the addresses in your order file. And you basically could just operate a multi million dollar business with very limited employees and just focus on sales, marketing, and and product design. And interesting enough, um, in the book, the Four Hour Work Week, my clients actually mentioned in there. And uh, and he describes you know the benefits of this business model, and, and my client was one of the pioneers in the space. You know, was uh, in business for over fifty years, and um, and we ended up tripling his his our, his expectations on the on the outcome. And candidly, we had the wind in our sails. We had the pandemic and and this massive shift. And I convinced the buyer of the business that this is going to continue, or expected to continue, and it's never going away. We're just seeing an acceleration from from uh, brick and mortar to e-commerce and uh, my client's a beneficiary of it and so the buyer ultimately purchased the business despite having a location that's losing money one of his locations on the east coast was losing tremendous amounts of money but we turned that into a positive i'm kind of curious on the east coast losing a lot of money was that because there wasn't any business out there he was poor operation out there was it because of high expenses what was the reason that West Coast was doing well and the East Coast wasn't. So uh, the third-party logistics model requires an operator to rent a tremendous amount of space, like large warehouse space. So we're talking 80, 100, 150,000 square feet. Oh, yeah. My client had a half a million square feet of, uh, of warehouse space nationally. And so you're, you're talking about, let's say you rented a 100,000, 150,000 square foot warehouse. 
you got to pay that rent every month, even though you don't have customers in there. And the reason he wouldn't have customers is he has to have the warehouse space before he gets customers. That's exactly right. So it's it's challenging. So he had some customers on the West Coast and his whole model was, his idea was, well, I'll put some, a warehouse on the East Coast and my customers' customers will be able to get the product quicker because they'll have inventory in, in two spaces. So he had about 20% of it filled with his existing customers, but 80% of it was empty and he was losing money on it and he wasn't getting enough new customers and what I learned and found out was, well, what's positive behind this? Is one I found out his his space was under market. I'm kind of curious of why the the space was under market. Was that because he had signed a long term lease that gave him preferential rates, or had the market just expanded and become more competitive and rates had gone up? So what I discovered was that in 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 warehouse and in industrial warehouses nationwide, space was becoming more and more scarce, and price per square foot was just going up. And my client had signed his his lease agreement years ago, and the annual bumps were below what the annual increases were in rent and market rent nationwide. So I said, that's actually a positive story. That's like an asset on your balance sheet, actually. That's right. So I said, look, you know, there's there's a there's a lot there's a lot to be positive about. My client was actually ready to go and sell just the West Coast West Coast location. But I said to him, look, I don't want you dealing with these headaches post-closing. I want you to just enjoy your retirement. You'll have a tremendous amount of of, of, of money to, to just relax. Don't deal with this headache. Let's just try to sell this whole thing as a package and we'll, we'll, we'll position this and frame it in a positive way, which it in fact is. And so we, we just went looking for buyers and I found a buyer that needed space on the East coast. It was so tight. They couldn't even find anything. And so we actually turned this negative into leverage for us because they really needed it. And they really liked the fact that it was already 20% filled. It was already, it was already built with racks. And, uh, and the lease was long enough to where they would enjoy some of the below, below market rates. And we were bake in a really good price for his business. And so we ended up selling that and, uh, and the West Coast location, which interesting enough, was completely packed. He didn't have any capacity to grow. And, um, and so that, was, that gives you an indication of how strong the market was. So he picked a great time to sell. And quite frankly, you know, I think luck needs to be paid its due. Uh, we, uh, we definitely just stayed, stayed focused on, on the earnings. And then we also definitely did not get bogged down or tied down by this money losing operation. We just positioned that in a positive way. And we got the deal done three days before Christmas in 2020. And uh, my client couldn't be happier. So I'm just kind of curious when you talked about this COVID bump, you know, if you're in the right place at the right time, sometimes the wind and the sails can really propel you forward. And that's what for certain types of businesses, that's kind of what COVID did for them. It put wind in the sails. I'm just kind of curious to what the magnitude of the increase of his profits were because of this COVID bump that he got. He got roughly... Um, about two and a half times his earnings. His earnings were, uh, you know, roughly about a million dollars, and then um, we grew it, and you know, he was doing about two point four times, uh, two point four million in earnings. And so he didn't really do anything else. He didn't spend a bunch of money on marketing. He didn't do other things to scale his business. It was strictly driven by the circumstances of more online ordering underlying the drive by COVID. That's that's correct. He did do that. He started outsourcing a lot of his labor too, because it's just very labor intensive. And so that increased his cost a little bit, but that's right. That's right. It was just um, a, a massive industry shift. And I have to say that I think a lot of your listeners own businesses that probably, interestingly enough, experienced a, 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 a bump up, a COVID bump is what we call it, and it's a it's a remarkable time in M and A and business transactions today because how do you value some of these businesses that experienced an increase one year later in 2021? How do you value that? Do you do you say that you project in the future this is going to continue or or not? And so that's one of the that's some of the things that we're working on today with our existing clients is trying to figure out what's the narrative and what's the story here as to why this is going to continue. Can we convince a buyer that this is going to continue? And that's what you have to do. So, you know, people might sell exercise equipment. People were buying exercise equipment online because they couldn't go to the gym. But is that going to continue? And masks and thermometer and thermostats and thermometers. It's like all those things uh, are, are, are things you have to ask yourself, you know, is that going to continue? In this case, 
I was able to to convince them that you know third party logistics is going to be the future. I think people are just going to buy more and more online because that's the new habit. And my client also, I also emphasized like savings opportunities and also the business models of my clients. I told them, hey, we've got clients that sell consumables; they sell vitamins, and so those those uh, those they're just going to keep ordering more and more vitamins. And it's once it's consumed, it's almost like recurring revenue. So you have these inside this recurring revenue business, you have recurring revenue clients. So you just got to look for little gems of, of um, ways to pitch businesses and just keep looking for those things and, and emphasize them. But also at the same time, you really have to have the earnings to, uh, to su- substantiate and really add substance to your, uh, to your arguments. Well, it sounds like you were able to identify a buyer that understood the industry. And even though there were negatives in the industry, in the business specifically, of this East Coast operation that was losing a lot of money because it had 80% vacancy rate in the warehouse, you know, they, they had gotten more space in the anticipation of growing and they weren't growing fast enough. The buyer really understood that this was not a big deal. This was the way you presented it and he got it, that it was a positive and that this was an opportunity for them. And so where you may approach another type of buyer that would just be freaked out because this place was losing a ton of money on the East Coast. And Marvin, you know, when we when we were looking at all the offers, we picked the buyer we knew valued that East Coast location the most because we were worried they would in due diligence drop out because deals fall through. And, uh, you know, there's a saying in our industry that deals die three times before you get to the finish line. And we just thought this buyer is perfect. And that we knew that they had the capacity to raise the funds because 2020 was not a good market um, for for borrowers. Lenders were holding on and they were not lending uh, until like the fourth quarter. And, but we uh, we had a good sense of of, of where it was, and we we were just really careful about which which buyer we picked. And that's key. That is really key um, is making sure you pick the right buyer. So big takeaway here for the audience sets. Uh, listening to this transaction and kind of process some of the details of the transaction. If you could sum it up and just do a sentence or two, what would be the big takeaway here? If you have um, something about your business that you think a buyer might perceive in a negative way, I'd say bring it up to the forefront, bring it up early, um, disclose early and often, and also um, just emphasize that more as an asset and not a liability and uh, you'll have a, a much a much better outcome. But um, again, uh, Marvin, I can't say it, earnings, earnings, earnings too. Yeah. So it's really taking negative, finding the right buyer and packaging and sharing a narrative and a story that turns those negatives into a positive. And if you have the right buyer that understands the industry, they'll get it and they'll value it. And that it actually becomes a plus if it's positioned properly. Now, that's insightful. And I think anyone out there that has, and all businesses have issues, there are no perfect businesses out there. They all have their issues. And I think if you process what you've discussed here and think about it, is that every entrepreneur out there is going to have some component of his business that he's uncomfortable with, he's going to see as a perceived negative when he's going to try to market and sell his business and you know collaborating with someone like yourself that can understand and position a presentation that can be seen as a positive for the right type of buyer i think is an insightful thing that will give a lot of people listening to the podcast something to think about as they move forward and think about positioning their own business for sale here so let's wrap up here today bob how about another transaction maybe something a little bit different that you could share with us so this this company that i i had sold their business years ago it's really interesting they sell products for or for assisted living so essentially the hearing disabled was a a core constituent of their um, their customer base and so for example if um if if you are hearing disabled and somebody knocks on your door how are you going to hear the knock so they would actually make a device that goes on the door that magnifies the sound of the knock. If you're sleeping and you're hearing disabled and you can't hear the alarm clock, how do you wake up? They had a vibration sensor they would put inside your mattress that would actually wake wake you up by vibrating your bed. And so they had a bunch of different devices, you know, loud telephones with large buttons and uh, and even, you know, uh, things that would make it easier to use your your iPhone. And uh, And they worked with 
the with the states because the states actually allocated some funds to uh, to help folks uh, that maybe couldn't afford some of these things, uh, and so they had these um, basically these these relationships with all all the states and also internationally, and so the business was recession resistant and manufactured its products overseas and brought its uh, products um, here to the United States and then also often shipped directly throughout the world. And when the owners were explaining it to me, they also explained they owned half of, uh, of, a, of a manufacturer and in, in, in almost kind of a, a manufacturer's broker in, um, in Asia. And they, being of um, Asian descent, uh, you know, made it to where I thought, boy, you know, I think a lot of folks are going to be real nervous about that. Why would that be? Why would there be anxiety on that issue? Every buyer, when they're buying a business, they just want to make sure they don't end up competing against the seller after the transaction. So in any way, and they don't want to feel like, you know, they're at a disadvantage um, compared to the the seller. And so I knew early on, I'm going to have to make a buyer comfortable with that. And how do I do that? So we have a confidential business review, a confidential information memorandum, which is a package we do for all of our, our clients when we go to market. And inside there, I decided I was going to put right next to the wonderful earnings growth or earnings trend was to explain in there early on. So they knew, and it was never a surprise that they have this um, ownership relationship and uh, with, uh, with a partner in Asia and how they don't expect it to be an issue and explaining that early on. So you, you, you have all these negative aspects that you want to talk and explain to a buyer early. So again, you know, disclose early and often, and you just explain it. And once you do that, and it's not a surprise, it doesn't scare off um, every buyer. But I have to tell you, we also filter out a lot of buyers that were scared off by that. They were a little nervous. They're saying, "Look, I, I don't, I don't speak Mandarin. I, you know, don't have any connection to Asia. I'm concerned that they have a relationship that I'm not going to be able to nurture and foster. And I don't know, you know, uh, what's going to happen post closing. So, we ultimately found a buyer who he himself lived overseas and this company was based here in the United States and he wanted to return back to the United States. He was a U.S. citizen living overseas. Where was he living? Was he living in Asia? He was actually, a, he was actually living in the UAE, United Arab Emirates. And uh, he, his daughter had just finished uh, going to school there and was also going to be attending college here in the United States. And so he was, we knew he really wanted to move back to the United States, but we also we also knew he had a good background. So he was a C-level executive um, looking to run his own business and buy his own business. And instead of trying to, 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 to make other people wealthy, he wanted to make himself wealthy by owning his business and, and using his skill set. So we actually went through the SBA loan process on this transaction. You can loan up to $5 million, you get a loan up to $5 million from them. Uh, and with as little as 15 to 20%, maybe 25% down, and and buy yourself a business, and so that's exactly what he did, and uh, and we went into contract, and we had heavy conversations with him about the relationship issue, and also this is where I think a lot of sellers can help a transaction by explaining it directly, and as long as they come off as credible, honest, trustworthy, quite frankly, even maybe a little bit likable, it makes things so much easier. And um, it makes the buyer so much more comfortable and they don't feel or perceive as much risk. But, and we were also very transparent. There was nothing the buyer didn't ask for that we didn't provide. We provided everything. And the buyer was actually outside of the industry, which made things a little bit easier in terms of sharing information, as opposed to when you're selling a business to uh, somebody inside the industry, it's a little bit more sensitive. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, this issue of a 50% ownership in a, a factory that the seller owned and 50% was owned by someone in Asia. I'm kind of curious how you got the buyer to be comfortable with that. So we explained it. We explained it to them and we explained to them that there's only a limited set of products that are actually sold or um, uh, manufactured uh, through this uh, through this relationship, and the rest of the products are not. So the non compete must have been pretty skillfully drafted to satisfy both the buyer and seller. So you're not capping 
opportunity on the seller, but protecting the buyer on his core products. Uh, it's a great point, uh, Marvin. We had we had an attorney, and, and this was like a heavily negotiated part of the actual purchase agreement between the attorneys, and we were fortunate enough. Uh, the seller's son uh, actually worked at a law firm, and, and his law firm was um, instrumental in drafting a non-compete that was satisfactory to the buyer. But also uh, what we did is early on in the LOIs, we addressed the non-compete um, aspect as well, which helped avoid a situation where you had this contentious negotiation when you're really deep into it already. So how did you discuss that up front? Just disclosing that there would be a non-compete negotiated or did you lay out terms in the LOI or the letter of intent? Yeah, the, buy- the seller agreed not to compete against the buyer um, in any way that would affect not only just the current products, but future growth products. So um, some business owners make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, I won't compete against the existing business, but there's all these other growth opportunities I want to pursue that are in the same industry. And oftentimes buyers will get really nervous about that. So it's really important to um, to negotiate that non-compete when you have an issue early on in the LOI. Um, so that way, if if you know, you'll never get a buyer that's more generous um, as they are in the beginning. And then deeper into the process, if they start to find more and more issues, they might start to get nervous. So negotiating that, that non-compete and having an attorney that really understands it is key. So it sounds like the takeaway in this situation really is when you have a unique business or a complex business or some complexity in the business that may be perceived as a deal point that's difficult to negotiate is that you really need to address this early and get the buyer or buyers comfortable so that they understand what the dynamics are and how this isn't going to materially impact the transaction and it's not seen as a negative, especially if it comes up late in the transaction and then you have this standoff, you know, that I didn't know about this type of situation. That's right. Yeah. I think the the complex aspects or sensitive, almost like sensitive, if you can just be sensitive to what a buyer might be sensitive to and you bring those up early, um, they don't really turn into an issue later if the buyer is comfortable, but they would be an issue if it's brought up later and the buyer felt like this is something that should have been told to me earlier. And in that case, then you might end up spending so much time going down the aisle with a buyer and never get married, which is unfortunate. So I'd, I'd say disclosing early and explaining it um, avoids a lot of, lot of issues. Well, Bob, it's been a fascinating discussion. Great stories, great transactions so that you've explained some relatively complex concepts and different types of businesses to our audience here. If someone wanted to reach out to you and chat with you about their specific situation or have some other questions that they may want to get your input on, how would they do that? How would they get a hold of you? So uh, the name of my firm is Seapoint Business Advisors in, uh, in Westlake Village, California. Uh, my name is Bob Graywall. They can email me, Bob at sea, like the ocean, S-E-A, pointadvisors.com, or simply call me. Um, you can call me at um, 805-557-8200, and I'll be glad to speak with you. All right. Well, Bob, appreciate your time and the input you've given us here and sharing your transactional stories with us. And so this is Marvin L. Storm telling you that we'll see you on our next episode of Business Exit Stories. Thank you, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.